afternoon. We start off the show, though, and in a few moments, going to ask you a little bit more about your first job because the minimum employment age in this province is going up. And you might be surprised to know that it's currently at age 12 and it's going to go up to age 16. Harry Baines is BC's Minister of Labour and joins me on the line now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Jill, thank you for having me. Uh, the biggest change it looks like is the mm. age going up, but I know there are also some other changes coming when it comes to employment standards in this province. Can you talk a little bit more about what is going to change? Yes, the current changes that uh, you just mentioned uh, does two things. One is that uh, it raises the uh, general working age in British Columbia from 12 to 16, and also defining what type of jobs that are appropriate for those who are under 16. Now, your viewers may be surprised to know that BC was the only jurisdiction since 2003 that allowed um, workers as young as 12 to do any, virtually any type of work, uh, how dangerous it could be. And the WCB data showed uh, they paid millions in uh, sometimes life-altering injuries that uh, children suffered. Um, I think we took a five-year data between 2007-2016, but $1.1 million was paid. And also, we were not in compliance with the international uh, labor standards when it comes to employment for children. So, uh, so we brought those changes in 2019 with the legislative changes, raising the minimum wage, uh, raising the uh, the wage, uh, the age, uh, working age in BC from 12 to 16, but also defining that uh, that the younger worker than 16 can do some light work, and that the changes that we are announcing now is a number of examples and after doing the consultation with parents with workers with uh, with others uh, what is the appropriate uh, um, age appropriate work for for those who are under 16. So the province has put out a list of examples of that so this is light work that would be deemed appropriate for 14 and 15 year olds how is that going to be enforced? Well, I think just like any other law, we have employment standard branch that enforce uh, BC's labor laws uh, when it comes to complying with the uh, with the minimum standards that are established in the Employment Standard Act, and this becomes part of the Employment Standard Act. And uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, as I said, the legislative changes, but now uh, through regulations, we're defining what the light work is, and if there is an issue, there is a complaint. Employment Standard Branch will be investigating and to take appropriate action, including penalties in case they are found to be uh, in non-compliance. Uh, some of the examples are recreation, sports club work, light farm work, yard work, uh, things such as gardening, uh, clearing leaves and snow, administrative secretarial work. Uh, in retail, it includes stocking shelves, uh, laying out displays, sales cashier Bussing tables. I mean, that's one I think that a lot of people will relate to that when you're 14 or 15. Uh, for me, that was my first job was in a restaurant and I loved it. So that's still going to be on the table. So do you see much change, say, if we look at the service industry when we're talking about 14 or 15 year olds who want to work in that industry? Yeah, so they. I think that most of the workers are, you know, the young children are working in those type of jobs, but there are instances where they were engaged in dangerous workplaces, just such, just like uh, um, uh, the, the construction and others, uh, or sometimes repairing or maintaining operating heavy machinery. Uh, for example, you know, the, the, uh, the farm culture is such that the whole family goes out and work, and uh, the children help out the parents, and that will continue to be. 
uh, there, except that the the, the young children uh, aged 12 uh, will not be uh, allowed to handle chemicals, for example, or operate heavy machinery such as harvesting machines and those. So I think uh, it is a common sense thing because work experience can be very, very rewarding for our children when they're growing up at the same time going to school and they're getting uh, the -the on-the-job experience. That will develop uh, them into a real good, uh, I think, opportunities for them to uh, when they become into the broader work, you know, experiences than they than they enter. So I think uh, the idea is to allow them to work in light duty and protect their 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 health and safety. Um, you know, so I think at the same time make sure that uh, uh, the workers' uh, health and safety is totally protected, at the, and, and and they can they can continue to grow and, and develop uh, as a young men and what women. If- what if somebody is of the age 12 or 13 and wants to work and has parental or guardian consent or somebody's in the 14 or 15 year age group and perhaps wants to do a job that's not on this list but has consent? Right. So like I said, that those who are 12 years, uh, they can work uh, in their uh, family businesses, uh, you know, stocking shelves, for example, or helping on a farm that is a family farm, uh, but not... Um, able to uh, handle heavy machinery uh, or, or chemicals. And same thing, family businesses, they can work um, at a restaurant, uh, you know, preparing tables, but not serve liquor. And, um, and then if there are jobs that are not listed, as you mentioned, then the employer and the, and the parents can uh, approach the employment standard branch and uh, ask for their their permission and uh, those permission can be granted based on that it, it fits the category of light work. What kind of response have you had at this point from uh, workplaces, uh, from people in these industries where we do see the bulk of people in these age groups working? Very good so far. The Restaurant Canada, um, you know, felt that this is the right approach. And we also consulted ever since uh, 2019, we brought those legislative changes. We consulted widely. The Parent Advisory Council, they're happy with us. And there are some farms who uh, came on board and, and said, you know, this is the right approach. So I think, uh, uh, you know, broadly, there is a good, a good, good support. And then, uh, you know, they all understand that the BC was the only jurisdiction that allowed children as young as 12 to do virtually any job and uh, and we were cited by international labor organization for not compliance with um, with the international standard when it comes to uh, children employment so i think uh, those are the things that we are looking at because at the end of the day at the heart of this whole thing is protect those young workers at the same time give them the opportunity to uh, have the life uh, experience uh, of uh, of doing uh, on on the work job and uh, and so that they are ready when when they're joining the broader workforce. Uh, the only one that's, that sticks out to me in the list of examples, and again, this is under the light work appropriate for 14 and 15-year-olds, lifeguard is on that list, which to me seems like if you're a lifeguard and you have to jump into a pool and save an adult or save somebody who's drowning or deal with that, that doesn't really seem like light work. Well, I think, you know, we did the consultation. Through the consultation, those of the recommendations came, and that's why they are put in place. And uh, many other jurisdictions uh, have that, and I think it's working everywhere. So I think uh, we will be watching, we'll be monitoring, and uh, if uh, uh, more steps need to be taken to protect the workers further, uh, you know, especially the young workers, uh, you know, we will be monitoring. All right. Minister Baines, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for being available for coming on the show today. Hey, thank you for having me.
Well, we know bicycle riding has taken off, especially during the pandemic. A lot of people getting those bikes out of storage or purchasing new bikes. Unfortunately, bike theft is also rampant right now. Vancouver police earlier today releasing some more details about the seizure of more than two dozen bikes. They were found in an East Vancouver storage facility, and this was during a stolen property investigation that is ongoing. Take a listen to just part of what Vancouver Police Sergeant Steve Addison had to say. Bicycles are in very high demand right now. Used bicycles are in very high demand. A lot of that has to do to uh, COVID. So if you put a bike online on Craigslist for sale or uh, on Facebook for sale, it's going to go very quickly and it's probably you're probably going to get a significant amount of money for it. Um, as a result of that, we're seeing a lot of bikes that are being stolen and uh, resold through um, essentially organized crime operations. Now this investigation is still active. We haven't determined all the facts, but what we're seeing a lot in general in the city, bikes that are being stolen, uh, they're being stored somewhere in a central location, and then they're being resold online through uh, websites, whether it be Craigslist, Facebook, or some other means, because there is uh, quite a significant demand for, uh, for used bikes. Let's bring in Navdeep China, Director of Campaigns and Inclusion at Hub Cycling. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. And I, I just want to ride my bike like <laughs> your intro song. It was wonderful. <laughs> yes, I think a lot of us, we just want to ride our bikes. I would imagine members of Hub, simply given the numbers, we're talking about people who are very passionate about cycling, probably have a lot of bikes and expensive bikes. Uh, how prevalent or how often do you hear about theft? And, uh, I agree with uh, Constable Edison, who I just um, um, put on the air, that the monetary value, availability, and the utility of bicycle have it made it a very popular target for theft. And we hear this concern again and again. Uh, it is uh, so bad that bike theft uh, remains one of the key barriers that is preventing more people to ride their bicycles. Uh, I've heard stories, even anecdotally, uh, a friend posting about the fact uh, her husband's bike was stolen right from Broadway in Canby. It was locked to the bike rack there. It's a very busy intersection. I'm on a bunch of neighborhood groups. Someone the other day just posted a video. Someone walked right into their yard, started looking around, found a bike that was accessible. And on the surveillance, the security film, you you see this person just ride the bike right out of their backyard. Is, Is it a matter of protecting our bikes or do we need to be doing more do you think as far as securing those bikes as best we can uh, definitely a research shows that parking and locking habits are closely related to the risk of a bicycle theft um, uh, there are often times that people think that oh i'm going to quickly run and grab something and uh, my bike is okay without a lock but it definitely is not and secondly people uh, sometimes don't invest in a good lock and they get cheap locks that can be easily manipulated or cut and that makes it easier to steal the bike. So it is because it's not one size fits all when we're talking about locks and uh, about having one that is not only going to deter thieves, but make it very difficult for them uh, to steal bikes. Have you found, do you then uh, uh, recommend certain locks to members of Hub or have people found that there are some that work better than others? Definitely. More than half the bikes, uh, stolen bikes are attached to cable locks. And those cable locks 
are the one that most people get from your bike shops and they're very easy to cut. But we recommend that you should use at least a U-lock. Those are the big metal locks. Uh, and it should have a minimum nine rating on the Abel scale or six on the kryptonite scale. So if you go to a bike shop, they'll tell you, oh, this is this rating. So uh, yes, we definitely encourage people to invest in a really good lock. And also when you're locking your bike, uh, make sure uh, you're locking it securely, the frame as well as one of the wheels to the rack. That makes it a little more difficult to tamper with the lock. Uh, police today, when they showed the two dozen and so bikes that were uncovered in this one storage facility, there were also a lot of bike pieces. There were seats, wheels, different parts of bikes. Do you find, too, is that something that even if your bike itself is secured, are thieves taking off with parts of the bikes if they can get that off the bike? Definitely, yes, I would agree. Yes, um, most often people have snap-on wheels as well as seats, uh, which makes it easier for them to make their adjustment, but also on the flip side makes it easier to steal. Um, don't leave your bike unattended in open spaces for a long time. Uh, and that's, that was one of the reasons I mentioned that you should secure your frame as well as your bike wheel um, to, the, uh, to the lock or the metal Uh, where you're locking the bike. Um, One more thing I would uh, like to emphasize is that the city and uh, buildings need to invest in better end-of-trip facilities. Quite often, the bike roam is at the far end of a building, which makes it very difficult to access. They should be much more easily accessible for people so that they use those facilities more often. And secure, I would imagine there's a big difference in some, uh, it's much different than having, say, a bike, one bike rack kind of in the middle and exposed with having a locked facility and a facility maybe that's by card access only or something like that. Definitely. Uh, uh, It is uh, somewhat shameful that all the municipalities in Vancouver have zero bike facilities. They rely on uh, organizations like TransLink to provide uh, public bike facilities. Uh, they have not created their own public facilities where people can have uh, a square place to lock their bikes, maybe use some kind of tap or a compass card to access those facilities. So, yes, we need to invest in more end-of-trip facilities if we want more people to use cycling, as has been the desire for the municipalities. Do you hear any stories about people going on their own, going on their own, or I know there are Facebook groups and other groups you can enlist their help that actually go after? They scour Craigslist, they scour these websites looking for bikes. They meet up with uh, the people who have stolen them and who are trying to sell them. And in many cases, from what I understand, they actually negotiate and in some cases pay for the bike, getting it back, knowing full well it's a stolen bike. But it's a lot cheaper to pay a hundred bucks or one hundred and fifty bucks for a bike rather than lose that bike forever. Do you, do you hear of hub members doing that or people doing that? I, I don't necessarily hear hub members doing that, but uh, definitely there are Facebook groups where uh, the groups are predominantly for people who want to share their experiences about cycling. But quite often you'll see a post that, hey, I see this bike on Craigslist. It doesn't seem right. Does it belong to anyone? Uh, but instead of uh, doing that, what I would encourage more people to do is register their bike to Project uh, 529. Project 529 is a free online bike registry uh, that police departments across North America can access. And if your bike is stolen, they can enlist it. They can look up there and track it down to you. So invest in Project 529 registrations. And it's not always safe to go out for people selling on Craigslist.
Right. Uh, it was interesting. I thought Sergeant Addison mentioned that and said even if the serial number has been scratched off, because in a lot of cases, that's the first thing thieves do is they scratch off the numbers so, and then be- do that before they sell it. But he was saying even if that number is scratched off and you've registered with Project 529, there are often other ways they can identify the bike and get that bike back to its owner. Definitely. In, in addition to the serial number, uh, what they do is they take multiple photos of your bike. So there are also photos uh, uh, from few different angles along with the serial number or special uh, markings on the bike that the thief might not know about that uh, they can use to identify the bike. Uh, you would, I would imagine you would agree, and Sergeant Addison mentioned this off the top too, that biking really has exploded during the pandemic, whether it's people dusting off their old bikes, getting them tuned up or purchasing new ones. Has it at least maybe started that conversation or ha- getting people more more kind of in tune with the fact that we do need better storage areas and safer places for them? Definitely. That is something um, like in a recent City of Surrey Transportation Planning Survey, 70% of the respondents expressed desire to cycle more often. So in all these conversations, the cities are hearing that we want to cycle more often. So uh, end of trip facilities is the right next stop so that people have a safe place to park their bikes. And when they come back, they have the assurance that the bike will be there. Uh, TransLink has invested in, I think, 11 bike parkades across the region, and they're opening more places where people can safely park their bikes. So uh, there needs to be a lot more spaces, though. Um, Like I said, the cities have zero public uh, bike parking places, while other cities like Amsterdam have, like, thousands of these such uh, spaces that are free for people to use uh, for the first 24 hours and that encourages more people to bike as well all right navdeep china we'll leave it there for today but thanks so much for joining the program thank you for giving me this opportunity well we know that soon there will be the ability for fully vaccinated Americans to come across the border into Canada. And we know things are loosening up as well as far as quarantine rules for people who are fully vaccinated and arriving in Canada. We also know it will be at least August 22nd before the same can be said for a Canadian going south at a land border. And the general thought is it will be longer than that. So we thought it might be a good time to check in with what's happening in Point Roberts. Brian Calder is the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce and is back with us on the line again. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Thank you, Jill, and welcome back. We missed you. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, How are things going in Point Roberts these days? Well, business as usual, no business. Um, You know, we're still locked in solitary here, and uh, if, if this happens on the 9th, as is touted by of uh, Ottawa, um, what will happen is a few more people will be allowed out of here to go taking the more business out to Ladner, Delta, Tawasson, Surrey, and so forth, but nothing coming in. And we need a reciprocal agreement to solve or help ameliorate some of the economic devastation that's hit our businesses here. It's just been outrageous. Uh, and now we're missing two summers. Uh, and and it's it's not sustainable by our people. And we've got the best record in North America vis-a-vis COVID testing, COVID control, and COVID vaccination. The best in North America, and we're treated the worst. Have you been given any indication then uh, as far as what could change or what is being considered, if anything, as far as uh, what's happening there? 
Well, our governor, uh, Inslee, showed up here first time any governor's been here, I think, in over 25 years. Once he hit the ground, he spent half a day here, thankfully. Uh, he saw it. He got it. And he immediately wrote to Biden, same party, same Democratic Party, and I voted for both of them uh, in the past. Um, so I'm not anti, uh, but he did write and say, open Point Roberts now, specifically Point Roberts, not the whole country, uh, because he saw the devastation firsthand for the first time, firsthand on the ground here. Followed that uh, next day, Senator Murray uh, wrote and said, open Point Roberts yesterday. Um, and Congresswoman Del Benny, who's always been a terrific supporter of Point Roberts, did the same thing to their boss. Joe Biden, he's absent. It's willful ignorance, as far as I'm concerned, and ignoring Point Roberts completely. And I've never run across a president who was sitting on the sidelines when one of his towns went bankrupt. What do you think is the main concern that if you were to open up Point Roberts on its own, it could open the doors to somebody coming into Point Roberts, uh, albeit if it was only open to fully vaccinated Canadians, but somebody would what, come into Point Roberts and then perhaps hop on a boat and go elsewhere, that it wouldn't just be contained to Point Roberts? Specious argument. Um, <laughs> you know Point Roberts as well as anybody, and it's attached to Delta. If they don't want us, give us to Delta. They run a boat now uh, that's going to be uh, terminated shortly, But their answer was to run a boat. Okay, the boat, no one checks anything when they leave Bellingham. They come over here. We don't know where they came from. They don't check anything. They could be drug runners. Who knows what they're doing? Because nothing's checked. So you can take that boat, go on your joyride, and have lunch in Bellingham and come back or whatever you want to do. But for people who are ill, who need a doctor's appointment, from day one, 17 months ago, they should have put in a bus. We've got one sitting here that'll hold 12 people. It can run without running over the ocean waves. It gets there in an hour instead of two and a half hours. You, you, you can run it daily. You can run it any time you want. The bus the schedule could be tailored to the need, the demand, whereas the boat runs Monday and Thursday. And if you don't like that, sit at home. It, it's a joyride thing. It, it's, it didn't serve Point Roberts the way a bus would, and a bus would be one-tenth, one-tenth of the cost. So the, the boat you're talking about then, that is going to come to an end on August 12th. Do you think it will have a difference? I know it does nothing for getting tourists back and for getting people back to Point Roberts, but does the change on the Canadian side at least offer some help to Point Roberts residents that are fully vaccinated, like I think most, if not all, are coming more easily into Canada? Well, it, it's certainly, certainly going to be easier than it is right now, which is impossible, uh, but if you're requiring a COVID test, that's 180 U.S. dollars. We do it here. Uh, Fire Chief Carlton does it here every Sunday from 10 till 12. Results come back noon. They have to go to Bellingham to get processed. The results come back at noon on Monday. So you've got your 72 hours. You've got uh, till Wednesday to get through after you paid your 180 bucks. So if you're going shopping, that's a pretty dear price to pay to uh, have access to Thrifties and Ladner or, or Tawasson. 
Uh, right. So it's $180 every time then if you if you're planning ahead and you're going to under the new rules going to Canada, then you have to go through that kind of process starting Sunday of every week. That's the way I read it. Uh, the legislation, who knows what it's going to finally be. Those things have, have, have a habit of changing uh, before the final ink is dry. So we'll know better on the 10th uh, what they're actually going to allow and disallow. But there's no reason in the world to me that we're double vaccinated, that we should even have to be tested. We're going straight to the store and straight back or straight to the doctor and straight back. I mean, we've been deprived our doctors and vets, uh, pharmacy. We have none of those here, and uh, we've been denied it. So why, why shouldn't we be allowed to go to the eye doctor in Ladner, three miles away, and no, no, you've got to go to Bellingham, 50 miles away, on two international borders? It's, it's ridiculous. We've, we've got, like I've said, we've got the best record. We're treated the worst. Now they're giving incentives to people to get the vaccination. We lined up for it last February, but they're having lotteries to get the, the reactionaries, I'd call them, uh, in line to, to consider getting vaccinated. Why are you attacking us? Attack them. No, no, they give them rewards. Yeah, I know in Vegas they're doing, uh, I believe, one of the incentives is a shot for a shot. If you, you uh, go there, you get a, a shot of alcohol. If you get yeah, free uh, a, beer, sh- a shot of know, the vaccine. We get, get in yeah. the lottery, win a million bucks for doing the right thing. Like it's madness. So Absolute madness. With the with the news, though, that at least it's going to be at least it's extended, we know, till August 21st. And there seems to be a, a general idea, although it's not based on anything specific, but there seems to be this idea that it's going to be extended again. Like you said, this is another summer that's a bit, uh, well, it's a write-off for Point Roberts. What does that mean for the community? We're done economically. We're done. Our businesses cannot afford. They've wiped out all their savings or whatever reserves they had in their businesses last summer. We, as you know, we go to 5,000 people from 1,000 to 5,000. That's a huge, huge hit market-wise. And so you make it in the summer and you re- hold your reserves and profits through the, takes you through the winter and you open up waiting for the spring hit again and it's not there. One year they can sustain. Two years they cannot. They cannot do it. it, it it's a, apply it to a person working in a business. And the boss says, okay, uh, you're making 3000 a month now. We're going to give you 300 a month, you know, 90% reduction. But we want the same level of service. We want the same, you know, out of you. And you, you maybe go along with that for a bit. And then they say, oh, well, it's going to continue for another year. I mean, it's just nuts. You can't do it. So we've got unemployment. We've got people leaving for jobs over on the other side, I call it. Uh, both in Canada and the USA, because half our people here are dual. We're both Canadian and U.S. So some of them have gone back to work in in Ladner and Tawasson. All right. Well, Brian, we'll check in with you again. And hopefully, well, one of these days, I'm hoping we'll have a conversation that's on more of a positive note. But thanks for joining us and talking about this again. Thank you very much, Joe. We appreciate the support. Well, there is a very encouraging title on the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra page. It says the Vancouver Symphony is back and taking a look at the 2021-2022 season opening with a unique set of four concerts all starting on September 18th. And joining me to talk more about this is Neil Middleton, the VP of Marketing and Sales with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. Good afternoon to you. 
Good afternoon, Jill. How are you doing? Very well. This must feel great to be able to announce this. It is, it is very exciting, and it's something we've been looking forward to for uh, over 18 months now. So it is, um, it's quite amazing that we're, we're, finally, we're finally at this point. So what will things look like when these concerts start and you start inviting people back? Well, we're, we're expecting really a best-case scenario. Um, uh, as we all know, BC tracking really well on vaccination. Um, phase three, we, we've got um, 50% capacity in venues. Audience is up to 5,000 people, which is really good news. And when we announced going into phase three, the, the provincial health um, office uh, foreshadowed that phase four were probably at 100% capacity. Um, and we are we are um, getting ready for that. Uh, we have announced our first concert. We're back gala performance with the VSO Maestro Autotosk on September 18th, and then um, a really fun <laughs> kind of perfect. We think the perfect show to get us back into the swing of things. Back to the Future yeah. uh, in concert. The film, the great film with Michael J. Fox um, with the v, uh, with the VSO playing the score live underneath. Um, it's going to be full audiences. We will we will have health and safety measures in place. We're we're going to see exactly what gets announced when we get into phase four. So we're following the guidelines appropriately. Um, we know things are, are shifting and evolving, and and we will be paying really close attention to that and communicating carefully with ticket holders um, right before the shows. Um, but right now, we we sent a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. People have been looking forward to this moment for a long time. Our musicians have been really looking forward to this, and um, it's going to be an exciting fall. It absolutely will be. Full audiences, so that's going to feel different for people coming back to this. Will it be the same as far as uh, you have actual tickets, or will it be no-touch tickets? Will there anything that you're anticipating like that that will still be different? Yeah, we're making some big changes on that front. There's been... As everybody knows, there's been so much innovation. Uh, we have a new VSO app, which holds mobile tickets. You'll be able to scan your phone under a scanner. Um, no need to touch or exchange physical tickets. Um, you, can, you can do the whole purchase process online um, at vancouversymphony.ca. You can find the app by searching Vancouver Symphony in your favorite app store. You can buy tickets there, hold your tickets there. And we'll be rolling out digital programs as well in that app. So you can get all the information, artist, artist bios and program notes. Uh, so that's going to be that's going to be quite a different way for a lot of people to interact with the symphony. Um, I don't think that complicated. We're used to it with um, airlines now and, and we've got digital tickets in a lot of places. So it's going to be pretty easy thing to adopt. But that's one of the big changes we're making. Um, and there will be some others just in how how we move audiences in and out of the venue and and what the expectations are when you're seated that will be really clarifying when we when we get into phase four and see what the guidelines are uh, do you think it will be a scenario too where i'm guessing even though it's it's supposed to be back to normal and things are supposed to look like they did before the pandemic do you anticipate that there will still be masks or any other uh, other of those measures i think it's very likely and even if they aren't mandated we want to make sure people are very comfortable to come in, in any way that they want. Um, something we're putting in place is a is a no questions asked refund policy up until Christmas. Um, if people buy tickets and something changes in your life or, or something changes in the environment and you don't want to come, you know we're gonna have free refunds, no problem. And and we're also um, you know we're not naive. We realize the world could change. We've had a lot of different changes. 
Uh, we're ready to roll with it. If, if we're not at 100% capacity, we have some backup plans. Um, we have ways to manage the audiences if, um, if we can't bring in a full house. So we've got a lot of backup plans. We've all learned how to kind of roll with things this year. And we're, we're really um, ready to do that as we go into the fall. And I just wanted to touch again, we've got a couple minutes left, but the uh, playing along with the Back to the Future, because I think that is important too, as much as people do love the more traditional concerts and there will be those, there's something just fun and frivolous, it feels like, while still getting amazing music and seeing uh, the film playing in front of you. You know, I was just listening to the, um, the trailer, the, the, the score, so much of the emotion is in the music, and, and it's another great score written by Alan Silvestri. We've done um, a few of his films in the past, and when you have this great big symphonic score that has all the emotion in it, and then you have um, the film on a big screen in the Orpheum, which, as we all know, was originally you know one of the loveliest movie houses in, in the city, it's just a totally different way of experiencing a film. And if you haven't had that chance... Um, to do it, uh, you've got to try it. It's it's a really lovely way to watch a classic film, bring the family, you know, it's something kids haven't necessarily had a chance to see yet, um, but it's been been out for 35 years. They just celebrated the 35th anniversary, I think it was two years ago. Um, So it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. And of course that theme, Back to the Future, is just perfect to kick off this this uh, new season. It is for sure. Let's leave it there. Neil, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this positive news. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, not only did people take up cycling in leaps and bounds during this pandemic, we also know a lot of people welcomed dogs into their homes, partly because people were working from home and decided now would be the best time to do it. Well, now many people are trying to get those dogs trained. In fact, dog training businesses are booming. And our show contributor, John Jang, is here to take a look at that. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. Many different businesses and industries have struggled throughout the pandemic. We have heard their stories right here on this show. But one business that has certainly been booming is the dog training business. With higher adoption numbers across the province over the past 16 months, it's no surprise that certified trainers are in demand more than ever before. That includes Mariana Warnell, master trainer at Middle Earth Canine Academy in Victoria, who joins us now. Thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Now, one of the things that we know as truth and fact throughout the pandemic is that so many British Columbians have decided since we're working from home, we're staying at home, uh, many, I'm talking hundreds, maybe thousands decided, this is the time I'm going to become a pet owner. And speaking with BCSPCA over the past, who knows, 16 months, uh, they've constantly reminded us that, hey, we're seeing cat and dog adoptions go through the roof as a result of people wanting a little bit more emotional support. That brings us now to your story, Mariana, and you're telling us now uh, that you are the busiest that you've ever been with your business where you are trying to train a lot of these pandemic puppies, if you will. Yeah, it's uh, it's puppies as well as um, dogs of all ages. Basically, people have gotten just about any dog they can find. There are far more puppies than usual, um, and I am, yes, I'm incredibly busy. I'm sort of uh, five classes a day, um, six days a week, plus sometimes I have a day off sale. So, uh, yeah, very busy. What was business like for you before the pandemic, and how does that compare to the number of clients that you now have? 
The Middle Earth Canaan Academy, I started uh, June of 2015. So the first couple of years, we're just building the business. And then after that, I've had, you know, you get a four-inch thick binder full of all the clients. That's about how many um, each year following that. Um, and this year, I'm almost full on a four-inch binder, and we're not quite done the year yet. So uh, It's a busy yes, time, it's- yeah. I, and, I, mm-hmm. and I think that's great to see because the, the worst-case scenario that we want is for uh, new pet owners to all of a sudden decide, oh, I can't do this, it's not for me, and then they all of a sudden have to put the pet up for adoption. Whereas with your service, what you're getting is these puppies and dogs are getting trained. Uh, That tells you that the owner is still very much invested into the relationship they have with these pets. Yeah, and and what I offer, it's basically 10 one-hour private sessions. So it's not like I used to do group classes years ago. In group classes, you only have a certain amount of time for each team. Whereas when I'm doing private lessons, each, each time they come, they get an hour of my time, and it's a full course. So, you know, kind of like kindergarten to graduate, um, I don't know, college or something like that. And right now, is it just uh, you by yourself sort of doing this, or do you have several other team members who are able to sort of assist with the high numbers of dogs that you've got going on right now? Um, yeah, no, it's just me here. I do have uh, a few colleagues that, um, that, I, that I can refer people to. Um, if I'm not able to have the time to help them here. Um, and then I also have um, three private students that are coming to learn to become dog trainers. So uh, that's for the future. Right. And, you know, what does it tell you when uh, you see the pet owners getting their, their dogs and puppies back? And indeed, like your, your work is paying off. So these dogs are trained. They're starting to behave a little bit better. You can see the relief or maybe the satisfaction in the pet owners. Uh, and, and what does that feel like to you? Because I'm sure it always has to feel special. Yeah, it excuse me, it feels very special, but um, it's not that I'm training the dogs. I'm teaching the people how to train their dogs. Um, so with the skill set that I have, I'm able to educate the owners on how to uh, how to have their dogs become very well-mannered um, family members, members who are able to live in harmony in the home. Oh, I love that, actually, because a lot of people are, again, doing this for the first time, so they don't know what it's like to all of a sudden be responsible for a living creature, a creature that you can't communicate with verbally that you have to uh, build behaviors into there's you know in my opinion uh, and maybe you can correct me on this but I don't think there's ever such a thing as a bad dog but there are bad dog owners and so I think what you're doing is trying to root out those bad dog owners and build those correct habits in people yeah I don't think there's any bad dogs either I mean you might have occasionally just like in humanity a dog that's psychologically imbalanced which is more difficult to to help um, but mostly it's, um, it's not bad owners either. It's more people who don't have the knowledge or the ability or the understanding of how to communicate with their dogs. And, and interesting, you say that you can't really talk to them. Well, I sort of, um, my experience is dogs can understand a whole lot of vocabulary of whatever language their human speaks. So I do almost teach English as a second language, if you will, sort of, to dogs. So that, like my dogs, I can ask my dog Noah, you know, go show me where the Kongs are, please. And he'll go to the, to, to the cupboard where they usually are, unless I put them in the windowsill, and then he'll look up at the windowsill. See? Now, this is the part where I have to reveal to you that I'm a cat owner, so clearly I'm out of my <laughs> element when I'm talking to you with all these things. But that is, again, part of the learning experience when I'm sure when people come in and, and they have questions like I do, and they are fascinated by the work that you can do. So for those that are listening, uh, those out on the island that maybe want to get in touch with you, learn more about this program, how can they put even more work on your shoulders right now? Um, well, it's Middle Earth Canine Academy. We do have a website and we do have a Facebook page. Uh, the phone number and address and all that information is up there. 
Um, people can email me. Um, I do offer a one-hour complimentary meet-and-greet um, where they can come and meet me, and then if they decide they want to take the course, then we would fill out the forms, et cetera, et cetera, and book their schedule in. Uh, on the Facebook page, you probably have to scroll down a bit, but we are working with a deaf dog, the owner, uh, Zach, and his deaf dog. So we're teaching this dog sign language as well. Uh, some of it is from the American Sign Language, like mom and dad symbols. Uh, when we cross our, fi- our fingers, that means right paw. When we do an L-shaped hand, that means left paw. So it's all very interesting as well. I love Just hearing that. that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever uh, heard of such a training program like that. But, I, you know, a deaf dogs, they, they also want to communicate. So I, I think that's oh, a yeah. fabulous way of doing it. Yeah, and I've also worked with, uh, about a year ago, it was a deaf, blind, double blue Merle uh, Australian Shepherd. Um, so he was both deaf and blind. So we had to use a lot of touch signals with him, you know, um, move, it, move your hand down to the ground to go down, touch his shoulder to ask him to stay, just a lot of different things like that. So just for interest's sake, um, there's, you know, there's help for all kinds of dogs. Love it. And so if you are a pet owner right now, sorry, a dog owner, and if your dog has some of those conditions, you can find help. Again, MiddleEarthCanineAcademy.ca. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. You have a wonderful afternoon.